So now let's turn to uh, Daniel 1, which you can find in your corner post or uh, open it in your Bible. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them uh, the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel reserved not to de- uh, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these young, four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let us now come before our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the great one who never fails us. Lord, you are the one who we can truly depend on. 
But Father, we confess our lack of dependence on you. Lord, we confess that we turn to things of this world for comfort, Lord, uh, when we should be turning to you. Lord, we thank you that despite our sin against you, that you continue to care for us and that you do not forsake us. Lord, help us to overcome our desires for the things that are not from you. Help us not to seek uh, independence, as is valued in this world, but to depend fully on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Eve chose to listen to the serpent and eat from the forbidden fruit, instead of following God's command, we have struggled to depend on God. Since then, sin has swept through the world. The history of God's chosen people was an ongoing cycle of them turning away from God toward the desires of their hearts, foreign gods, and the temptations of this world. And it's in one of these valleys of depravity that we find ourselves in our passages today from the books of Jeremiah and Daniel. Now, you may have heard this story before, and if that's the case, then please bear with me. Its, uh, its origins are a mystery to me, and as far as I'm aware, it's not a true story. But it does share with us a true uh, principle of how we should respond as Christians in a world that is antagonistic towards us. This is a story of a preacher who lived in a city determined to silence God's word. This man was a faithful preacher of God's word. At first, the city officials came to him in his church and told him that he was no longer allowed to preach at the pulpit. So our preacher, without making a fuss, packed up his stuff and he went to the city square where he continued to preach God's word and draw great crowds. This agitated the city officials who went and said to him, you can't preach at this in the city square. We forbid you from doing this. So the preacher, without making a fuss, packed up his stuff and he moved to the cemetery where he continued to preach. And there he continued to draw great crowds. At this point, the city officials were getting frustrated. So they came to the preacher and they said to him, you can no longer preach in this city. So the preacher, without stirring, a, uh, stirring up a fuss, moved outside the city limits where he continued to preach God's word and drew great crowds. And now the city officials are furious. So they engaged the state authorities as well. And they came to him and said, you're no longer uh, allowed to preach God's word anywhere. So our preacher, without stirring up a fuss, went back to his church, unlocked the doors, went back to the pulpit and preached God's word. Like this preacher, Daniel was forced to live in a society that was hostile to God. Like this preacher, Daniel willingly followed orders from the, the authorities that we might find objectionable. Like the preacher, Daniel never forgot who his ultimate authority was. For many years now, I've been intrigued by this passage and comforted by it. Working in a secular environment, I was often confronted by authorities over me uh, ordering, ordering us to do foolish things or things that were completely counterproductive. I'm sure many of you have faced similar situations. 
And so as Christians, where do we draw the line between human foolishness that we still must obey because there are authorities over us? And where must we not obey because it goes against God's commands? Through this passage of Daniel 1, we'll explore what the Bible has to teach us on this topic. In our human perspective, we can see that the authorities around us are becoming increasingly sinful. There was a time that our laws were explicitly based on Christian principles. However, over the last few decades, we've seen the introductions of laws allowing abortion, undermining the meaning of marriage and family, restricting religious freedoms, restricting Christian schools. We even saw, more recently, our own pastor and our street preacher brought before the anti-discrimination tribunal just for preaching God's word in public. The lessons from Daniel are particularly applicable to us today as we pass through a global pandemic and restrictions that are dividing even churches. As one of your elders, I can say on behalf of the session that we are grieved to see potential division within our church. We're being challenged to serve God and his church faithfully in a way that we haven't been challenged in my time serving as an elder. No matter what conclusion we arrived at, we were going to upset people within the congregation. We agreed that all that we could do was to faithfully follow the principles that God sets out to us in his scriptures, albeit in our own imperfect way. As a session, we announce to you that as Christians, it is our obligation to obey the authorities. Good or bad, they are our ser God's servants. We've encouraged each one of you to follow the government mandates, but we have sh stopped short of imposing these on onto you. This is a matter between each one of us and our government as individuals, and more importantly, between each one of us and God. So I've got two main points to share with you in this sermon today. The first is that everything that happens is by God's decree. Whether they be things that we consider to be blessings, or whether they be things that we consider to be curses, such as natural disasters or human persecution. Everything that happens is by God's decree. And second is that we must not depend on human institutions whether this be government, science, education, or anything else. Our dependence is to be always in God. It's helpful for us to go back in history to understand how Daniel and these other boys ended up in Babylonian exile in the first place. This was the result of the rebellion of Judah against God that we read about in Jeremiah 25. This history is well documented in other books of the Bible, including Kings and Chronicles. There are a few key characters that we need to introduce to understand this chapter. The four Jewish boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. King Jehoiakim of Judah. Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, and the prophet Jeremiah. So first, the four Jewish boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were among the Jewish people forced into exile in Babylon. 
they were considered among the highest potential leaders within their community, of royal or noble descent, handsome and intelligent. Depending on the source, their ages were somewhere between 15 to 20 years old when they were taken into captivity. And then next is King Jehoiakim, who was the king over Judah at the time of the exile. The biblical records show him to have been a wicked king. He became king under the appointment of Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, who was in control of Judah at that time, and then later under King Nebuchadnezzar after his defeat of both Egypt and Judah. And then next is Pharaoh Necho, who ruled over Egypt prior to the Babylonian exile. At this time, Egypt and Babylon were great military rivals. Israel was situated uncomfortably between these two superpowers, and in 605 BC, Necho invaded Judah to act as a buffer to protect Egypt from Babylonian invasion. Necho deposed the incumbent king and instated Jehoiakim, who we've already introduced, uh, as a vassal king who was subservient to Necho. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king over Babylon. Uh, Babylon at the time was the other great superpower of the region. Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylon at the height of its military rule. And then finally is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was God's prophet during the reigns of the last kings of Judah up until the time of the Babylonian exile. In the book of Jeremiah, we see the, prophet, uh, the prophet's message of repentance and judgment upon Judah for their sinfulness and idolatry. Jeremiah's message made him particularly unpopular among many of his countrymen in Judah, even to the point of him being at risk for his own life. He prophesied Judah's exile to Babylon as God's judgment upon them and their eventual deliverance with the fall of Babylon 70 years later. So at one level, this is a story of two world superpowers at war and a tiny nation wedged unfortunately between these two giants. We see, however, through Jeremiah, Kings, Chronicles and Daniel, that both Egypt and Babylon were just God's instruments of judgment against his idolatrous people. This was not a time of spiritual strength for Judah. We see through two kings that apart from Josiah, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the rest of the kings, until the Babylonian exile, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So it's with this background that we come into the book of Daniel. Judah is already a vassal state of Babylon, subordinate to King Nebuchadnezzar. By God's decree, Nebuchadnezzar took the best and brightest from Judah into exile in Babylon, leaving only the poor and the misfits behind. In verses 1 and 2, we see the siege of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. From the start, the author makes it clear that this is not down to the strength of Babylon, but rather to God's sovereign decree. This is God's judgment that was prophesied by Jeremiah being fulfilled. While Babylon was ultimate, will ultimately be held to account for their sin, God uses them 
to fulfill his sovereign purposes. Nebuchadnezzar is presented to us as a wicked, ungodly king. As was customary in the time among polytheistic nations that worship many gods, he takes the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and puts them into the treasury of his god Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. This is seen in their culture as proof that Marduk is more powerful than God. Then we're introduced indirectly to Daniel in verses 3 and 4 as one of the people forced into exile from Israel. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar instructs his chief eunuch to bring him the cream of the crop of the Jewish youth, born of royal or noble descent, free from any defect, handsome and intelligent. This is part of a cynical plan to control the Jewish people by putting their most promising young men through a process of Babylonianization. They are to be immersed in Babylonian education, likely including their language, mythology, historiography, astronomy, mathematics and medicine. They are to be thoroughly indoctrinated into Babylonian culture. The Babylonians worshipped many gods and this literature was likely filled with magic, sorcery and astronomy. This is the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. Now this practice of indoctrination is intended to create a culture of dependence on the king. In verse 5, we read uh, of the daily portion of food and wine from the king's table. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. After a period of three years of dependence and indoctrination, the youth is considered ready to enter into the king's service. To be a bit controversial, this indoctrination is not dissimilar to what we're seeing in Australian schools today. We're introduced to the Judean boys in verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. As part of this process of Babylonianization, the Hebrew names are replaced with Babylonian ones. So Daniel, or my judge is God, is renamed to Belteshazzar, or may Bel protect his life, with Bel being the chief Babylonian god. Hananiah, or Yahweh shows grace, is renamed Shadrach, or the command of Aku, with Aku being the Sumerian moon god. And Mishael, or who is what God is, is renamed Meshach, or who is what Aku is. And Azariah, or Yahweh shows grace, is renamed Shadrach, or the command... I lost my spot. Mishael, who is what God is, is renamed Meshach, uh, Abednego, servant of Nebo, with Nebo being another of the Babylonian gods. So it comes to pass that these four boys 
replace their Hebrew names dedicated to God with Babylonian names dedicated to several of the Babylonian gods. We don't see any indication here of resistance from them taking on these new identities. So in these first verses, we see, we see the boys being subservient to their conquering ruler. However, in verse 8, we start to see resistance. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. For Daniel, eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine is a step too far. He accepts three years of indoctrination in the Babylonian universities. He takes a name dedicated to a pagan god. And at the end of three years, he's willing to enter into the king's service. So what is it about eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine that causes him to resist? One explanation for this is that eating the king's food would go against the mosaic dietary requirements. While this is likely true for some of the foods, it doesn't explain him uh, declining the wine, which was a staple in Hebrew culture. Another explanation is that uh, the Babylonians offered their food as sacrifices to their gods. This is also true. However, the vegetables that he accepts uh, were likely also uh, offered as sacrifices to the gods. According to many scholars, the most likely explanation for his refusal is to ensure that he and the other three boys continue to depend on God and not on Nebuchadnezzar. Wise men in Babylon were expected to be quite pudgy, as we know from their artwork. To be skinny was to be unwise and unfit to serve in the, these roles um, for the king. Ultimately, we can't know for sure why Daniel declined the food and the wine, because the Bible doesn't tell us, except that to do this would be for them to defile themselves. And so it is that we see God's grace in the remaining chapter, uh, verses of chapter 1. In a similar fashion, that God blesses Joseph in Egypt by softening the hearts of those in authority over him, so God does with this chief official. It's the job of the chief official to prepare these four young boys for royal service and to, to deliver them well fed. In verses 9 and 10, we see that, despite God causing the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, he is terrified of his king Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men, young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. What Daniel is asking would almost certainly result in him looking worse, which in that culture meant skinny, than the other Hebrew boys, and the official would be executed. To accept Daniel's request is almost a death sentence for the official with no apparent gain for him. So to refresh your memory of where we're at in this story, these boys were among some 14,000 to 18,000 of the Judean elite forced into exile in Babylon. 
they were to undergo three years of indoctrination into Babylonian culture and values. Their Hebrew names were replaced with names dedicated to Babylonian gods, and they were looking forward towards serving King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we don't know how Daniel would have responded if the chief official had have refused Daniel's request, as the Bible doesn't tell us. As we see in verses 11 to 14, Daniel humbly reasons with the official to provide uh, them with relief from the system. We see in these verses how God sometimes gives us a way to escape from within a system, even one as corrupt as the Babylonian Empire. Verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. So rather than switching their diet permanently, the chief official accepts a short trial to see how they look after 10 days. Daniel trusts in God that he will deliver, and this God does. As we see in verses 15 and 16, not only do these four not look worse than the other Hebrew boys, they look significantly healthier. Verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were to drink and, and, uh, to drink and gave them vegetables instead. When by healthier, the author means fatter, this is apparently impossible without the rich foods from the king's table. Nonetheless, the test is successful, and they are allowed to continue with their vegetarian diet. Through the remaining verses, God continues to prosper these boys. They grow in wisdom and understanding to the point where there is no one else to be found in Babylon equal to them. So as Christians in 2022, how do these events from more than 2,600 years ago apply to us? The answer is, they apply to us a lot. By God's grace, our government hasn't reached the levels of wickedness found in Babylon. We're not forced to change our names to ones dedicated to other gods. Can you imagine if our Prime Minister told you that from today onwards, your name would be Muhammad or Abdullah or Ahmed? I'm sure that you would be horrified by this. I certainly would be. But this is exactly what these boys are going through, and much more. Throughout the scriptures, we have many examples of people and nations depending on God and being blessed, or turning away from God and receiving his judgment. In practice, in our day-to-day -day lives, it's not always easy to discern how to go about acting in dependence on God. Dependence on God is very much a heart issue. We should study the scriptures to understand God's will. We should read the works of great men of the Christian faith and ask God in prayer for discernment and understanding. Even with all of this, we will often come to the wrong conclusions. We should never assume, when we're dealing with differences within the church, that we are the stronger ones and the other person is the weaker one, because we may well be the weaker one. 
Our family recently attended Southern Presbyterian Church and their pastor, David, said something that really struck with me. We can be right with the wrong heart or we can be wrong with the right heart. So whether we are right or wrong, let us have a right heart with love and compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ, independence on God. So this brings me to our first application. The first thing that we should take away from this passage is a reminder that all things are decreed by God. I think it's safe to say that most of us find it relatively easy to attribute things that we consider good to God, whether this be the birth of a child, good health, good relationships, and material provision for our needs. But what is not so easy is to attribute the things that we consider bad to God. A cancer, a flood or a fire, a war, a famine, a sinful law. We tend to attribute these things to anything or anyone but God. It was a freak of nature. It was human sinfulness. It was bad luck. Or it was the devil's fault. At one level, all of these things might be true. But at the deepest level, God doesn't just allow these bad things to happen. He decrees it. This is difficult for us to understand with our human limitations. We don't know God's plans. They are much greater than ours. We do, however, know what God reveals to us. All of the events in the lead-up and the time of exile in Babylon were decreed by God as a result of the sinfulness of Judah to bring them to repentance. King Jehoiakim of Judah, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon were all evil in God's sight. And at the same time, they were all God's servants to carry out his sovereign will. Today, COVID is God's servant. And our government is God's servant. Unlike the book of Daniel, we do not know what God's sovereign plan is for the challenges we're going through today. But we do know that not only does God allow these things to, to happen, but he has decreed all that has come to pass and all that will come to pass. And like Christians through the ages, we should all find comfort in this. And this brings me to our second application, the core message of Daniel 1, which is dependence on God. The great example that Daniel set for us is his utmost dependence on God for his provision. He knows that to eat from the king's table would be to, to depend on Nebuchadnezzar when he should be depending on God. We must examine ourselves and whether we're depending on God. Or are we depending on scientists to protect us? Or are we depending on the government to tell us what to do and how to think? Are we depending on ourselves to do it our way, in our own strength? In relation to our current events concerning COVID, devoted Christians are coming to very different conclusions. At one extreme, some Christians believe that the government, that everything that the government is doing is in our best interests and that we should follow everything that they ask us to do. At another extreme, some Christians believe that the government are overstepping their legal authority and part of a greater, highly concerning plan that we can't be part of in good faith. 
So let me ask you a few questions to gauge where you're placing your dependence. First, are you fearful that a person not wearing a mask is a risk to your health? So I'm an engineer and I like numbers. And these are the numbers from the Tasmanian's uh, own, uh, own website. Currently we have 5,746 current COVID cases, of which 31 of these are in hospital and two of these are in ICU. So what this means is that if you were to catch COVID, you have approximately a one in 200 chance of that being serious enough to require you to go to hospital and approximately a one in 3,000 chance of this uh, being serious enough to require intensive care. So these are only the reported numbers. There are likely more, many more asymptomatic cases that haven't been picked up. So are these numbers, uh, do these numbers justify our fear? And second, is your objection that Christians are disobeying the government? As a session, we've stated that it is good to, that you should obey government mandates as they are God's appointed authorities over us. But as Christians, we're not obliged to unquestioningly follow our government. This is the same government that permits abortion, has redefined marriage and family to concepts completely alien to what the Bible teaches us. It's, uh, it's under this government that our former pastor and street preacher were put before the anti-discrimination tribunal for preaching from God's word. By God's grace, he raises up faithful men and women into politics, and we should be grateful for this. However, we should be under no mistake that evil exists within our political system at all levels. We cannot now or ever depend fully on our government, as the government is made up of sinful men and women like you and like me. And third, how concerned are you for the consciences of your Christian brothers and sisters? We could do a whole series on conscience. And in fact, the Southern Presbyterian Church have done that. And if you're interested to, to learn more, I encourage you to look at their, uh, their sermons on their website. What I can tell you is that the Bible takes our consciences very, very seriously. If we impose our beliefs onto others, we are forcing them to either go against their conscience and do something that they cannot do in faith to God, or we're forcing them away from our churches. Romans 14.23 tells us, for whatever does not pr proceed from faith is sin. So whether they're right or wrong, these brothers or sisters are acting in accordance with their consciences and are already paying a heavy price for this, with many of them already losing their jobs or at risk of losing them shortly. Brothers and sisters, more often than not, depending on God is a difficult path to take. It means having the conviction to take unpopular positions. It means often sacrificing ourselves to others. Daniel is a wonderful example for us to follow as we strive to depend more on God and less on this world. He recognised Nebuchadnezzar for who he was, 
God's appointed authority over them. And as such, he was to be obeyed as far as he could without putting him into the place rightfully belonging to God alone. We have a blessing that Daniel did not have. He was looking forward to the Messiah to come, while we have the benefit of all scripture revealed to us. We have the solution revealed through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our independence from God, since Eve listened to that servant, serpent and ate the forbidden fruit, is the source of death, suffering and corruption in our world. In our sin, we are powerless to overcome this, no matter how hard we try. Despite our rebellion against him, God so loved us that he sent his one and only son to die for us, to pay the price for our sins, that we may be considered righteous in his eyes. Let this be an inspiration for each one of us to turn to our Bibles in good times and in bad to really understand what it means to live independence on God. Our leaders and our human institutions will continue to fail us, but God is the one that we can truly depend on. Let us pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank you for your word that we may understand what it means to live a life in dependence on you. <coughs> Lord, please help us to not be people who depend on the things of this world. We know that everything of this world is corrupted. Help us to, like Daniel, put our dependence in you. Help us to share this confidence that we have with those around us that don't know you yet. Holy Spirit, continue to work in us. Lead us through this life. Give us discernment to know how to live in dependence on you. Lord, may this bring us to the foot of the cross. As people without hope apart from you, but with full confidence that through the price that you paid for us on the cross, that we may be one with you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen.